Hello there, folks. It's good to be back on the air. It wasn't that long ago that I was on the air with you all, probably about three days ago when I was uh, vacationing in Williamsburg. And of course, I'm sure some of you were thinking to yourselves, how could I have time to podcast while on vacation? Well, it turns out that earlier in the day, that Saturday being three days ago, my wife and I um, spent a good chunk of the day in uh, Yorktown visiting the uh, Yorktown Victory Center Museum. And if any of you all have not been to that museum, I strongly recommend um, doing so. It's more than just about the American Revolution's um, last true major battle. It really entails an entire history of how the Revolutionary War itself came about. But what do you know? We've actually been talking about some of that in this uh, series on Paul Revere's ride, which is essential because uh, in order to understand how his ride will come about, we have to uh, look to the past in, in order to get a better understanding of how the past and the present come hand in hand together. But hey, if you have the time, regardless of where you are, make the most of it. And if you know you can fit in a podcast, then go for it, even if it means taking a break from, um, from day's travel. But here we are discussing, uh, once again, David Hackett Fisher's Paul Revere's Ride. And in this podcast session, we're going to be discussing about British plans and American preparations. What could these plans and preparations be all about? Well, they could involve three things. Not just three things, how about three phases? Think of it as like football, folks. In football, you've got offense, defense, and special teams. Plans on the British side, preparations on the American side, that entails both offense, that entails all three aspects of the game. Offense, defense, and special teams. Sometimes the best offense can be your best defense, and sometimes the best defense can be your offense. And then when, t when you intertwine those two um, elements, you still get a, a good dosage of special teams that works both, way to, both ways to your advantage. So, you know, the British have uh, been in a big uh, setback now. Uh, from the previous podcast, we uh, talked about how they at first got the upper hand uh, just six miles northwest of Boston when they, see, when they seized munitions from, um, from the gunpowder or what we call the magazine house. And then uh, Paul Revere uh, journeyed 50 miles north to warn um, his fellow New Hampshire um, men, even though he's not from New Hampshire, but New Hampshire does border Massachusetts. He warned uh, fellow uh, Committee of Correspondence people that, that the British were going to um, plan an attack. While it turns out that there was no credible threat, Paul Revere was a saint and that he helped get these men in shape, not just in shape from a physical standpoint, but he allowed them to rally for for something big so that they could throw the enemy off by surprise, which they did. Had it not been for Paul Revere's ride 50 miles north to, to um, New Hampshire, or let alone to uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, it's fair to say that at this time that the New Hampshire uh, magazine house or the powder house would have still been in the control of not just um, the king's uh, possession, but that of uh, six British soldiers manning the, the fort. So, 
General Gage is in a big uh, debacle right now. And given the aftermath of the Portsmouth powder alarm debacle, what is General Gage himself going to need to do differently? For starters, he's going to have to strike directly at the core of the rebel movement. Core meaning right at the heart. But he's got to do, he's got to do it in a manner that's, um, for, for one, he's got to do it in order to prevent further mobilization gatherings. And what I mean by that is that he's got to find a way to put down this rebellion once and for all that would prevent uh, people from within the city of Boston, as well as from the outside neighboring towns, from even wanting to mobilize in the future should should an unprecedented attack come along to where um, the British can end this thing once and for all. But in order for um, a successful mission to occur, there would also have to be minimal bloodshed. And what I mean by that is minimal violence. In other words, you can't have uh, both sides harassing one another to extremes where you could have another incident similar to what happened five years earlier in 1770, being the Boston Massacre incident where five people lost their lives. He can't have anything like that. But in order for, um, in order for the rebel movement itself to be quashed, he's going to have to strike at the core of that movement, and he's going to have to also coordinate an event, or let alone an attack, should there be one, it has to. There has to be minimal bloodshed, and this can all be attributed to the fact, folks, that for New Englanders, they do revere their fundamental liberties. That's not to say that elsewhere in the thirteen colonies, people do revere their fundamental liberties, but most notably the New Englanders, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and yes, Rhode Island. Those four colonies are very, very um, adamant about their fundamental liberties. Of course, when I think of fundamental liberties, I, I'm inclined to say life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. But another core fundamental liberty for New Englanders, and I may have mentioned this from a previous podcast, so I'll say it again, how about the right to keep and bear arms? Especially when you're fighting an enemy who has um, made life difficult over the last 12 years in the aftermath of the French and Indian War, who has passed laws without your consent, who has forced uh, soldiers into your homes um, so that you may be required or that it's mandatory for you to, to um, provide housing, uh, shelter, and food and clothing for these men. I mean, come on. No proper consent? Yeah. I would want to uh, value my fundamental liberties if they were violated that badly. So if General Gage wanted to put down all further rebellion, or let alone rebellious activities, how would these missions, or let alone a mission by itself, what would it have to entail? Well, how about secrecy, surprise, and accurate intelligence? Okay. So you can coordinate an attack, but if you don't have a group of men who are committed to the cause, if you don't have anything in your plan that would entail surprise or let alone definitive intelligence leading up to your um, proposed plan, then how can the plan itself even succeed?
this is what General Gage has got to do, has got to take into consideration um, very seriously. So, how are the Whig leaders in return in New England? How are they prepared for what lies at stake? Well, for starters, they had been forewarned by friends, most notably sympathizers back in London like Isaac Barry, John Wilkes, even William Pitt, who was an earl, most notably the Earl of Chatham. And for those of you who live in Virginia, there is a county, Pittsylvania County, which would be named after the Pitt family. Uh, one time um, when my wife and I were in Williamsburg, one of the interpreters there said that Pitt uh, the last name of Pitt during the 18th century was a very common um, English last name. And then you have a town in Southside, Virginia, where Pennsylvania County is, uh, known as Chatham. Well, there is Chatham, England. And so there you have it, Earl of Chatham. So think about that. They go hand in hand. Well, yes, the uh, Whig leaders have been forewarned by, their, um, by those whom have sympathized with them back in London that the British Army is going to strike again, but they're not sure as to when or where. They do know that it is a matter of time before it does uh, happen. On the other hand, though, many prominent Whig leaders do know this, that if shots are fired, it would have to come first from the opposition being that of the British. Many of these men, most notably like Samuel Adams, Dr. Joseph Warren, John Hancock, even Paul Revere himself, they all truly believe that if the British fired the first shots, then America herself would be unified as one. I would like to believe that's true, but at the same time, even in 1775, leading up to Lexington and Concord, there were still a strong number of um, delegates in Philadelphia who did not want to go to war with England. And a lot of it had to do with those delegates taking their hostilities out amongst the people of Massachusetts, most notably Samuel Adams, John Hancock, whom are supporting the um, radical activities. So, you know, yes, one part of colonial America may be all for advocating separation from England, but you've got another um, large population of people in colonial America who do not want separation for reasons that go beyond the sky ceiling. Now, the Whig leaders agreed not to move further until General Gage had committed his forces. In other words, once General Gage had committed his forces, then they knew that an attack would come about. Once Gage proceeded forward with his mission, then the Whig leadership would mobilize their forces at full strength against him. For the Whig leadership, their mission, or I should say strategy, depended on careful preparation, timely warning, and advanced mobilization. Well, when I think of advanced mobilization, how about all the people living in the towns outside of Boston whom have... Um, risen up to the occasion already, and they know the enemy just as well as those living in Boston. I think it's fair to say that um, careful preparation, timely warning, and advanced mobilization, all of that ties into what I like to refer to as an us-we-ourselves 
strategy. Did both sides value the importance behind intelligence gathering? Yes. I would hope so. Otherwise, if you don't value intelligence gathering, then how are you going to be one step um, above the enemy? So, yes, each side valued intelligence gathering. On the other hand, though, each side went about gathering intelligence differently. Okay. I'm sure some of you are wondering how can each side gather how can each side value intelligence differently even when it comes to acquiring it. All right, let's start with the British system of intelligence. Their system revolved around a hierarchy. Okay? When I think of hierarchy, I think of a structural order. Uh, an order a system that's um, firm in place, a system that is probably rigid, a system that should not be uh, tampered with. The system for the British starts from the top and then goes to the bottom. The gathering of information usually began with questions from the chief commander, in this case, General Thomas Gage. So when General Gage goes about asking all the questions, he got told everything there was to know at that exact moment from those, you know, say, top-level officers right below him. While, on the other hand, it's good to get your information from those uh, within the inner circle. On the flip side, though, the questions that, never, that General Gage didn't bother asking that, say, could have come from men uh, from the lower tier spectrum of uh, the hierarchy order, if General Gage didn't bother to ask questions from uh, people outside of the uh, inner circle, then those questions never got addressed nor answered. Okay, so you get your information from one end, but then you leave the other end out to dry. So it's a double-edged sword that will come back to either get you or benefit you. But I think in this case, for the British system of intelligence, it's, um, it's too rigid, and at some point down the road, there will be other things that could come back to bite them in the butt. As for the American system of intelligence, it was done from the opposite. Whereas the British was from top to bottom, the American system was bottom to top. You had self-appointed groups to random individuals within each town whom would go about obtaining information on their own end without any um, head central command controlling all activities below. So I think it's probably good on one hand that perhaps you don't have a central command post. In other words, everyone's all in this together on the American side. You know, everyone is um, looking after one another, which is a good thing. Those whom, uh, you know, want separation from England. The movement itself had many leaders, but yes, no permanent chief commander to where nobody was ever truly 100% in charge. It would, e it would even be easy to think that Paul Revere himself was in charge, but in fact he wasn't. Remember folks, Revere is part of a large 
network of, um, of spy leaders, of intelligence gatherers, um, a leader in his community who goes above and beyond to do what is necessary to ensure the people's safety. At times, this system wasn't always 100% effective, given the, the fact that there wasn't one particular meeting place and people sharing the information didn't all live in the same town. So if someone living outside of Boston, say 20 miles away, obtained information on the presence of, a, of someone who's suspected to be a British soldier um, traveling through their area, then uh, John Smith would have to go 20 miles into Boston to notify a prominent man like Paul Revere or Dr. Joseph Warren of what, in fact, was going on. But regardless, at the end of the day, though, folks, for those people who lived 20 miles outside of Boston, they still were able to get the job done. You know, people were willing to sacrifice by journeying 20 miles by horse or even meeting someone halfway uh, because courier riders did that kind of stuff even with the mail, they would, um, you know, swap mail halfway so that, you know, the destination wouldn't take as long as it would if you actually had to journey a full 30 miles in one day. You know, half of 30 is 15, so if you can meet someone halfway, you're saving, um, you're saving yourself the, the extra unnecessary burden of having to go a little bit further and who's to say that you might even get that information relayed to the person above you by day's end. Let me think here, folks. Um, anyways, it is fair to say, though, that in the end, that sharing information from bottom to top did prevail. How so? Well, everyone had a voice. And their information was valued to where the greater cause for eventual separation from England became all the more inevitable. So if you, um, if you value people's information regardless of where they stand in society, then those people are going to feel welcomed. They're not going to be frowned upon. Um, in other words, you're not burning a bridge with that person. After all, they're all in this together. It's an us-we-ourselves movement. To me, I see the British system of intelligence as one that, while yes, it could be an us-we-ourselves um, mission, it's only part-time or temporary because the inner circle is only interested in the information they have to share, with, to share from within. As for the people below, well... Yes, they could have information, but because they're not one of us, then we won't take their information seriously. I do believe, and I've um, in the book I'm currently reading called Germantown, um, the history behind the battle for Philadelphia, one of the big mistakes that the British Army did make was that while, yes, they um, were interested in, a, in finding out just how many people were loyal, that is, loyalists, and they promised those who were um, loyal to the crown um, the opportunity to serve um, in the king's army. Many loyalist uh, sympathizers never really got the proper treatment they deserved. In other words, the British may have obtained their information, but they never took it seriously. The British promised 
many people uh, unique positions, but yet they never saw them. Whatever positions they were given were menial positions. So when we think of someone as being a loyalist, that doesn't automatically mean they're going to take up arms to join the British cause in um, in keeping their um, hegemony, meaning their dominance, in the 13 colonies to where England's uh, subjects will still remain under, um, what do you call it? They will still remain under the um, tight uh, reign of um, a tyrant 3,000 miles away. You can be loyal to king and country, but yet you could say to a British officer, I'm just not interested in fighting. I just want to remain loyal. That's more than all, more often what happened. There were those uh, living in colonial America who did serve in the war as loyalists, but more often than not, the majority of your uh, loyalist peoples either um, went into exile or if they stayed in America, they simply just uh, did not fight. General Gage's intelligence staff comprised mostly of relatives through marriage on his wife's side. Remember, folks, General Gage's wife, Margaret Kimball Gage, is a native of uh, New Jersey, and she will be mentioned again uh, soon. Uh, I do recall mentioning to you all from a previous podcast when we were talking a little bit about his background and, and, the, and whether or not he married, and of course we learned that he did. Uh, but we are going to learn some more about Margaret Kimball Gage uh, down the road here soon because her, her story is a, is a unique one. And it could throw some of you for some uh, curveballs. That's as far as I'll go. But it turns out that Mar Margaret Gage's brothers, most notably uh, Stephen Kemble, who was a major, and her um, brother being Samuel Kemble, the secretary. And then you have um, Margaret's cousin, Captain Oliver DeLancey. All of these uh, members, family members I just mentioned, served um, in the inner circle of General Gage's um, intelligence uh, group. You know, on one hand, to have uh, relatives in this inner circle is a good thing, but sometimes you never know when you might not even be able to trust family anymore. We could, we might possibly find that out later on down the road. All right, the next question is this. What did... What plan did General Gage devise in late February 1775? He arranged for two young officers whose names were Captain John Brown and Ensign Henry de Bernier of the 10th Foot to participate in an undercover mission going from Boston to Worcester, which and Worcester is west of Boston, it's about a 40 to 50 mile uh, journey, but of course in 1775 it probably would have been about 40 miles at best. It, the General Gage wanted both men to dress in non-British military attire and respond to the locals by saying, we are surveyors. Okay, why would you say that um, I'm, why would, why would you say that I'm a surveyor? Well, for one, if you say that you are a Tory, or that you are, um, or that you have ties to the British, um, you will more than likely be tarred or feathered. But two, by saying that you're a surveyor, you're going to fit in with the rest of the community. 
the what the what these two men are hoping for is that they can get um, members of the community to fall for the bait and start becoming so naive that they can uh, trust these men to where if they open their homes the men will the men will try to um, pretend as though hey we're your friends when in fact we could start taking advantage of you and do things that would um, that would uh, backfire on the uh, Whig side. So it's all about trying to blend in. We'll see if it works out here. So the journey to Worcester would have required both of these men to, uh, com to compose sketches of the countryside, along with reporting on road conditions, as well as looking for potential ambush sites. Worcester was home to 15 tons of gunpowder and nearly 13 cannons. Remember, folks, from the previous podcast, General Gage was going to plan on striking in Worcester, but the uh, but he canceled the plan. And I'm sure he's probably kicking himself for having made that mistake. So John Brown and uh, Ensign Henry de Bernier started out on this journey, and they dined at a Whig tavern in Watertown. There again, they're trying to blend in, but... What do you know? They're not able to outsmart the servants, assisting them, whom took it upon themselves by telling both men what possible repercussions could follow. So in other words, folks, the people who live in the towns outside of Boston, they're not dumb people. I mean, they, they know who's real, but they also know who's not real. They've been around long enough to know whom can fit in within the inner networks of the community, but they also know what really is an outsider. And when they know someone, and when they spot someone who's an outsider, they know right away that, hey, this doesn't look good. This is a red flag right here. This isn't somebody that we can trust, but we got to really keep our eyes on, on things before they escalate even further. So uh, both men went about dining, also went about dining at a tavern that catered to Tories in Weston. I find it interesting, folks, that, you know, just because you go to a tavern to eat, it doesn't always mean that you're welcome. Some taverns only catered to the Whigs, and then there were those who catered to the Tories, a.k.a. Loyalists. So they went to the, a tavern in Weston that catered to Tories. All, yes, they were welcomed. But yet they were warned by fellow Tory people not to go further into the country. I wonder why. I bet I know. Because these Tory men knew that if these two um, outsiders who, whom they probably knew not only had ties to um, king and country, but if they didn't know about their um, ties to the army, they probably explained to um, Brown and De Bernier that if you go any further, there's no guarantee that you're probably going to come back home alive. So in other words, the further west you go, the greater the troubles lie ahead. But on the, uh, how ironic, though, that both of these men didn't um, heed the advice of, the, uh, of their fellow uh, Tory um, comrades. They kept on trekking further, and they nearly did lose their lives not by means of violence, but they were navigating through deep snow trenches, only to be saved 
by a landlord from the tavern in Weston where they had dined earlier. So General Gage um, realized now, based off of what um, John Brown and Ensign Henry Day Bernier explained to him, that the roads to Worcester were difficult along with treacherous river crossings. So, yes, you could say that both of these men might have made a valiant effort to try to see what could be done in terms of wanting to fit in, but they didn't, they didn't really get um, anywhere. On the other hand, though, General Gage likes the effort that both of these men uh, put up, so he's going to ask them to perform another secret mission. He wants both of these men to find a direct route to Concord, which was home to a vast quantity supply of munitions. And so both um, John Brown and Henry de Bernier leave Boston by way of Roxbury and Brookline to reach Concord. Here's a little uh, interesting 101 uh, trivia for you folks. Brookline is not far from Boston. A former U.S. president was born there. His name was John Fitzgerald Kennedy. So whenever you think of Brookline, Massachusetts, think of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy. General Gage, let me ask you this, did General Gage have connections in Concord? Yes, he did. He had secret agents in Concord who knew about the munitions stored throughout the town, which included thorough inventory on a house-by-house -house basis, as well as barn-by-barn. Barn. So in other words, all the munitions, folks, were not placed in one facility. They weren't placed in what we might think of as like a giant warehouse station. But each um, house, as well as barn, uh, stored an adequate supply of munitions that, were, um, that belonged um, to the town of Concord. But, of course, in the eyes of those who are Tories, it would have belonged to the king. So... General Gage, based off of his uh, connections in Concord, was advised that prominent men like John Hancock and Samuel Adams resided in Lexington, five miles east of Concord. Well, you know what? Now that General Gage has this information, folks, I think he's got every opportunity now to strike it big. He's got all the ammunition on his side that, hey, I might be able to catch um, some of these leaders off, off guard to where one or two of them would be captured. And what do you know? If they are captured, we will ship them off to England where they'll be tried for their offenses and nobody in Massachusetts will hear from them ever again. Did General Gage know, though, all along that there wasn't one particular person in command of the Whig movement? Yes, he did. I mean, yes, he knows about Paul Revere. He knows about John Hancock and Samuel Adams. And he also knows about who he also knows who Dr. Joseph Warren is. He knows all these people. Uh, but then again, Dr. Joseph Warren is a very well revered uh, man in uh, Boston. Up until, I would say, the early 1770s, as a doctor, he was um, welcoming both Whigs and Tory uh, families into his uh, practice whom needed um, medical care as well as um, 
medical assistance. But of course, for Dr. Joseph Warren, the defining moment as to what side he eventually took, being that of the Whigs, came just shortly before the Boston Massacre incident of 1770 when um, an 11-year-old boy named Christopher Sider expressed his displeasure at, uh, at not only at the British being in Boston, but of uh, Tory activity, those who were uh, sympathizing with uh, the British. Christopher Sider and a group of other um, youths um, vandalized what we would call now vandalized um, a Tory man's uh, business and a handful of the boys chased the man uh, to his home and the man of course had every right to be scared for his well-being so he uh, took it upon himself to fire into the crowd but what he didn't realize was that he shot an 11 year old boy being Christopher Sider sadly Christopher Sider died from his uh, fatal uh, wound shot, and that's what uh, galvanized Dr. Joseph Warren uh, to become an ardent patriot. It's sad when a child dies, but at the same time, of course, you know, we have to ask ourselves, at what expense did it come to? Well, we all know what happened not long after the death of Christopher Sider, the Boston Massacre. So yes, General Gage, though, to put it in a nutshell, he knew all along that there wasn't one particular person in command of the Whig movement. But ironically, he knew that if one man was arrested, let's say Paul Revere got arrested, General Gage has figured out by now that there would be 10 or more people ready to take that man's place to keep the fight alive. Okay, so if, General, if, if Paul Revere is captured, you get Samuel Adams to step up. Uh, or you get some other random people or unknowns who are, you know, funneling information to the Sons of Liberty. You, you pretty much can get anybody to take Paul Revere's place. That's how powerful this movement is. If you placed all the power in one person's hands, then how would any of those other men below him know how to carry on the fight should anything happen to him? So on April, between April 5th and, the set, and April 7th of 1775, British troops moved by boat from Boston to Cambridge. Why were they doing this? Well, they are desperate. And they, um, when you become desperate, you're going to do whatever it takes to throw the enemy off guard. But the British are really desperate. They're... they're they're trying to go undercover here. They're trying to catch the Whig leaders off guard by blending into Boston society. They're trying to pose as everyday people. Like I said earlier, they're trying to get the outside, the people from within to be so trustworthy of them that um, over time, once that trust builds up, they can find ways to take advantage from within. So, you know, here the British are desperate, and they go as far as, uh, yes, moving by boat to Cambridge, where their activities are done in open sight for everyone to see. Well, they're also probably hoping that there will be a few people in the community who will become naive to where they, they just won't think anything of it, but I think the British are going to find that um, 
no one in Boston on the opposite side is, is naive. And were Boston's Whigs quick to respond to British activity that took place between that time frame of April 5th and April 7th, 1775? Yes. In the aftermath of learning about the British officers being sent to study Concord's roads, Paul Revere left Boston on April 8th, and he arrived to Concord the same day with a letter from Dr. Joseph Warren warning people of impending dangers. I must say, Paul Revere, to me at times, he's a one-man show, but I have to remind myself that, that, there's, that this movement is more than just Paul Revere. But I also know that Paul Revere is, is all, always seems to be at the right place at the right time. Thank heavens we've got people like him. On the other hand, Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Dr. Joseph Warren, they happen to be at the right place at the right time as well. That's what makes this whole movement so unique. It's not about one person. It's about everybody stepping up to the plate when it matters most to do whatever it takes to throw the enemy off guard. You know, it's not always about winning. And, of course, in their, in their case, they want to win. But it's also doing what's necessary to defuse the situation by being one step ahead. I think it's fair to say, though, for the um, this could be an early um, version of what we now know as the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, or like the FBI. In other words, Paul Revere, you know, and John Hancock and the other men from the Sons of Liberty, they are their own, they are their own CIA officers. Did Revere's ride to Concord prove false? Okay, I'm sure some of you are thinking, how could his ride, if he went to Concord, how could the ride prove false? to be false if he actually went there. Well, his ride resulted in the enemy not striking. Okay, so if the enemy didn't strike, was the ride to Concord still worth it? Yes, it was, because the false alarm allowed the people of, Con of Concord to transfer all of the military supplies out of town and move them into neighboring towns and villages. Well, there you have it, folks. It's good, to be, it's good to have a false alarm because now you know that, okay, while the real thing didn't happen today, who's not to say that it couldn't happen in a couple of days from now? So now that we have a false alarm, let's be on top of the game. And what do you know? Transferring military supplies out of Concord to neighboring villages and towns will allow us to be one step ahead of the British. So, what's important about April 16th, being a Sunday of 1775, Paul Revere performed another ride. Not just another ride, he performed a couple of rides. The first one was to Lexington, five miles east of Concord, where he provided news to John Hancock and Samuel Adams regarding British troop movement. Now, we... We have to keep in mind, too, folks, that, that not all of the Sons of Liberty members are gathered in one place at one time, and that's a good thing because if they all stayed together at one time and all of a sudden all the men were captured at once, then we could have a crisis. I mean, yes, if one man was captured, then yes, five to ten other men would, would be able to take that one man's place. But what if you had all the, the prominent leaders captured at once? Then it becomes all the more harder to uh, keep the flame 
of independence alive. So by having John Hancock and Samuel Adams away from Concord or even away from Boston, they have allowed themselves to be a little more immune to uh, being caught off guard by the enemy's presence. So Paul Revere also travels to Cambridge in Charlestown where he met with Whigs to discuss improvements upon existing warning systems. And in the next podcast, uh, when I'm on the air with you all, we're going to talk about the about some uh, warning systems that um, turned out to be lifesavers as we get closer and closer to the day, to that famous day of April the 19th. You know, the day that, as poet, New England uh, poet Ralph Waldo Emerson said years later, the shots heard round the world. But Paul Revere is discussing important um, matters like the um, how to go about improving existing warning systems. The pressing issue revolved around sending an early warning of movements by British troops from Boston via a short notice. So in other words, yes, you can send a warning to someone, but how are you going to send a warning to someone if it has to be, if that person or if the community themselves, if it's that urgent, they have to be notified within a matter of minutes versus, say, a couple of hours. Of course, you know, we don't have telephones at this time, folks. I mean, yes, couriers are up and down going north, south, east, west. But at the same time, there has to be something technological-wise that can be revolutionary for its time to help the communities know how the enemy is going to be coming into their town. Because think about it, the enemy, being the British, are only going to be able to access towns or cities, in this case like Boston, Lexington, and Concord, by means of two ways, by land and by water. So let's keep that in mind, folks. You only got two ways, land and water. Now, Paul Revere's movements from April 8th and April 16th were reported to General Gage. The British leadership devised a plan where 20 men, and this is from the inner circle of um, high-ranking officers and down below, but but from the upper um, echelon, starting April 18th, these uh, 20 men would go about intercepting American messengers. That was the plan. From roads connecting Boston and Concord to roads south and west of Roxbury and Brookline, including Cambridge and Lexington. Okay, if these 20 men can go about intercepting American messengers or what we call couriers, then they can really say that they put an end to the rebellion. If they don't, then the rebellion itself is still on. The British officers selected for the mission were found, or and I should say spotted, walking their horses slowly to stopping for dinner in country taverns as well as staying out after sundown. Remember, folks, most, you know, very, very few people um, stayed outside or stayed up after sundown. You know, people were going to bed. So for people to be staying out after sundown, I would call that a red flag. Because for all we know, that person who is staying out after sundown, we don't know what trouble they could pose. 
So if there are people, townspeople spotting people who just don't look right, then they have an advantage right there because they can obviously share that information along to people within the community as a whole. While, this, while journeying on the road, soldiers and officers would often ask questions to locals, most notably about Samuel Adams and John Hancock's whereabouts. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think it's fair to say that perhaps um, these uh, men who have been asked to perform this mission, the reason why they're asking they're about Samuel Adams and John Hancock is because they see these, these two men in particular as public enemy number one and number two, especially Samuel Adams. I think in the eyes of many of the British, Samuel Adams is public enemy number one. But they're also hoping that someone's going to spill the beans. They're hoping that maybe somebody will be willing to uh, fall for the bait and perhaps do the unthinkable. That is, betray the rest of the community. And remember, folks, bribery. Dr. Benjamin Church, who is part of the Sons of Liberty. Uh, General Gage bribed him for information. He took the bait and provided General Gage with all the information uh, going on at the Green Dragon Tavern. But, of course, General Gage didn't do anything about it, which I think was stupid. But keep in mind, folks, when someone is desperate to achieve their mission, they will do whatever it takes to get the opposition to fall for um, a trick, especially if it means bribery or just getting someone to come forward and say, oh, I'll, if I share this with you, then I'll be forgiven. Sometimes it works and other times it doesn't. And when it doesn't, there can be fatal consequences that uh, follow. The one I tend to think of most was from... Uh, Mel Gibson and the Patriot when towards the end of the movie when um, the man who portrayed Banistre Tarleton had said that this town's been giving aid to Benjamin Martin and his uh, followers. If anyone comes forward, uh, you all will be forgiven for your treason. Well, one uh, member of the congregation did just that. And then he said to uh, Tarleton, you said we would be forgiven. Tarleton's response was, and indeed you may be forgiven, but that's between you and God. In other words, you played with fire, you made a deal with the devil. And because you made a deal with the devil, you will have to pay the price in the same manner that the rest of your congregation will have to pay. And sadly, uh, the church was burned and everyone lost their lives. So we must keep in mind, folks, that these are, are, are very, um, they're not just trying times, but they are times where People's uh, loyalties are tested to where um, loyalties alone um, ruin families. Loyalties um, alter the course of uh, history as we know it. Did British officers and troops, let alone their presence in the countryside, in the countryside, alarm the inhabitants? Absolutely. However, the inhabitants, or the townspeople, I should say, they didn't allow for themselves to become intimidated. The townspeople, most notably from Lexington, came together by providing greater protection, most notably, well, I mean, most notably for Samuel Adams and John Hancock, because they knew that the British had been inquiring about these two men nonstop. Okay, 
if they've been inquiring about those two men nonstop, prominent leaders, I would take it upon myself to provide them with protection. After all, they're sticking their necks out not only for me and for my other fellow townspeople, but I need to do the same in return. After all, it is an us-we-ourselves movement. Some townspeople even went as far as performing scout work where they would follow British troops from mid-range distances to, re to report movements. Ironically, a couple of scouts fell into a trap designed by British regulars and were taken prisoner for a few hours. And ironically, at the same time, they were treated humanely. But these scouts, too, were questioned about Samuel Adams and John Hancock's whereabouts. Now, we're not far from ending this uh, podcast session, but I'm going to ask you all about a particular person. I didn't know anything about him until I read this book. Most people wouldn't know about him, but that's okay. He is what we would call an everyday average Joe citizen, but an everyday average Joe citizen who is uh, law-abiding and um, looking after for the greater well-being of his community. Who is Josiah Nelson? He is a townsperson whom accidentally mistook British officers for fellow countrymen. In other words, during the, during the night hours, he came across some men whom he thought were his fellow neighbors. And he was very concerned about British activity. Well, he inquired about it, and a British officer viciously attacked him. He attacked him so... Um, bad that um, he um, cut a gash into Mr. Nelson's head. And why it didn't kill him right away, I don't know. Mr. Nelson was even taken prisoner. Of course, I don't know how many hours he would have been taken prisoner, but what we do know is that he was released and was warned by the British that his home would be destroyed if he told others what had happened. After being bandaged up, that is, his wife bandaged him up, Mr. Nelson gathered his weapons and rode off by horse to warn neighbors. Okay, I may have gotten knocked down, but Mr. Nelson got back up and did something about it. He wasn't going to sit on the sidelines and say, hey, okay, the British hurt me. I guess I'm going to live my life in fear now because of what the British did. No, he's going to take matters into his hands by joining a greater cause. So the news itself, folks, has already begun spreading across the countryside like fireflies with fellow countrymen warning one another from all directions. Okay, fireflies, think of fireflies like mosquitoes. They move quickly. They come in any direction. You never know where one's going to land after uh, the other. Remember, folks, the British Empire is that large elephant. The only problem is that no matter where the elephant goes, the elephant can never outrun the mosquito. Why? Because an elephant's, you know, elephants, yes, they may move in herds, but they move slower. Mosquitoes come in any direction. So the elephant never knows what to expect from one day after the other. So, it's, we're getting closer and closer to the day where, as some fellow Patriot leaders said, it was a day that there was never any turning back. So, we've covered a lot of ground. 
And when I'm back on the air again next with you all, we're going to be discussing um, the Midnight Ride as a collective effort. Well, when I think of collective effort, how about an, um, an effort where more than one person was involved? In other words, let's just continue to keep in mind that while, yes, Paul Revere did have a famous ride, his ride was not a one-man show. His ride was made possible by the help of many men who worked within his network and by people from the community as a whole. Remember, folks, this movement could not have been achieved. Our independence itself could not have been achieved if we engaged in I, me, myself philosophy. Of course, here we are in April 1775. Philadelphia, while yes, there may be many in Philadelphia attending the Second Continental Congress who want independence, who want separation from England, there is a sector of our country that is unified, but there is another sector that's not. So we are fighting a war that's that is um, is on more than just one front. The people of Massachusetts are fighting a war. But in Philadelphia, there's a war going on as well, too. A, a war over whether or not the delegates as a whole can come together and, real, and, and say that, hey, the only route we know now is separation from England. The delegates, though, have that olive branch petition still going. And you know what? I'd say more power to them. However, it's just a question of time before the olive branch petition can no longer be valid. You can extend it all you want, but it doesn't mean that the opposite side is going to bend and welcome that branch and make the necessary modifications that have to be made in order to prevent an all-out crisis. Thank you again for your time as always, and I want to thank you. Thanks. I want to thank all of you, my fellow 101 podcast listeners, for being so supportive. Continue to get the word out. Continue to um, to get others who love history involved in this. And I want to say this too. Yes, you can make money on podcasts through Anchor Podcast or on any uh, podca- other podcast site. The way I see it is this. I'm not in it for the income. I'm in it for the outcome. Remember, folks, the outcome is what weighs more um, important than the income. It's not about the almighty dollar. But the fact that I've been able to generate almost uh, 7,000 plays and being in 31 nations around the world, that to me defines um, true outcome success. Thank you again for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Take care and stay safe.